do, then we welcome our pastor as the next night's speaker. Thank you, Dan. How are you guys doing? This is going to come hard and fast. This is the first night that we're doing that. We're actually starting a new group to do apologetics in the area. You know, I did it for a long time in Los Angeles, and there must have been 30 apologetics ministries out there. Here, I haven't been able to find any. So people just keep asking me once in a while to go off and talk about certain things, but at the end of the day, I'm an organizer. We've got to organize something and take something over. That's the way it gets done, right? So this is the first of many. We're going to have others every month at different churches around. Next month, we'll be down at Providence Church with Pastor Joey. Pastor Kent Morlock, who many of you know, will be teaching on uh, the historical evidences in the ancient Near East, which is a study near and dear to his heart. The, week, the month after that, we'll have Calvin E. Beisner over at the Richland Church in Rosemark, and he'll be talking about the ontological argument. And hopefully the month after that, which will be December, we're going to have an old uh, professor of mine and the former dean of Trinity Law School come to this church for the next meeting, and he'll be talking about the entire philosophy of C.S. Lewis, which he is an expert on, and he has some amazing things to say. Now, the big argument, the big elephant in the room all through the history of the church has been what big argument for the existence of God? The cosmological argument. Now, here's the thing. It's deceptively simple. It's also powerful. It's also controversial. And it didn't just start being controversial. It's been controversial for 2,000 years and even before that with the great thinkers like Plato and Aristotle. Because this is not a debate, this is a lecture, we're going to go right for the end point and start in prayer. And we're even going to quote some scripture to warm y'all up, okay? Lord our God and Father, we just pray that you would open our eyes tonight. That as we examine, Lord God, your revelation of yourself in the world and in the artifice of nature and also, Lord God, in your word, we just pray that you would help us to think things through to be reasonable as you are reasonable, to be rational as you are rational, and logical as you are logical, but also to seek and prize truth above all things. And we thank you for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as you all know, Psalm 19 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises on one end of the heavens, and it makes a circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. And the great theologians from history have talked about this in terms of the fact that God has revealed himself not only in the heart of man and not only in sacred scripture, but also in the works and the creation of the universe itself. In other words, God's fingerprints are on everything. So in laying the basic case, this is talking about natural theology as opposed to revealed theology. Now, here's the thing, and believe it or not, Thomas Aquinas, who's one of the most important people in regard to this argument, begins his analysis like this. There's really two ways to know about God. One is from revealed theology and the Bible itself, and that's probably the best way to know. 
Then he spends the next 2,000 pages talking about this other way to know, right? Now, Protestants have generally been a little uncomfortable with that. Our strongest tradition in this background comes from what they call the Princeton line or the Princeton theology, starting all the way back with Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s as the first president of the University of uh, New Jersey, which later became Princeton, coming all the way down through Charles Hodge and Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield and coming down to our own time still as an influence, but using a basic outline rooted in cosmological argumentation. And we'll see why. The basic idea goes like this. There are things in the world. We are things in the world. There's motion in the world. There's contingency in the world, things that don't necessarily have to exist. There are changes in the world. And all of these imply something previous to themselves. So that if you even start with any physical object in the universe and you find that it does not have the attribute of necessity in and of of itself for its existence then you can argue back to the previous causes of that thing and the previous causes of that thing and the previous causes of that thing until you get back to a place where you just don't have any more previously contingent causes. And you have to find something that has the property or the necessity of being within itself without having been caused by anything else. And when we look at the vast configuration of things and the intelligence and the design in the universe, when we think about how intelligent and how powerful this thing has to be to start the initial causes rolling, that thing is either God or something so much like God that if we don't call it God, we're really just running a game, aren't we? Now, really, from Scripture itself, we know that every human being knows the existence of God. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul makes devastatingly clear that every human being not only has sufficient evidence for the existence of God, but actual innate knowledge of God that they don't even learn from the universe. So much so that everyone is responsible for admitting to the existence of the God that they know. But these days, a lot of people disagree with that. A lot of Christians and a lot of people that aren't Christians. So we'll pick up from there. We'll start out by saying a little about the Big Bang because a lot of the contemporary arguments that are going on have to do with the beginning of the universe. In the sciences, we have many different ways of looking at things, and the sciences that we do now basically started about six or 700 years ago when we really started to develop the ability to make big and small eyeballs. We made big ones that can look at the stars, and we made small ones that can look at the molecules. And as those got better and better and better, we started to make presumptions about the things that exist around us by just an increased ability to look at stuff, right? And so with this, in this quote, the Big Bang model widely held as a theory of the evolution of the universe is essentially a feature in its emergence and the emergence of the universe from a state of extremely high temperature and density, the so-called Big Bang that occurred 13.8 billion years ago, although this type of universe was proposed by Russian mathematician Alexander Friedman and the Belgian astronomer Georges Lemaitre in the 1920s, the modern version was developed by Russian-born American physicist George Gamow and his colleagues in the 1940s. The Big Bang model is based on two assumptions. The first is that Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity correctly describes the gravitational interaction of all matter. 
The second assumption, called the cosmological principle, states that the observer's view of the universe depends neither on the direction in which he looks or on his location. This principle applies only to the large-scale properties of the universe, but it does imply that the universe has no edge, so that the Big Bang origin occurred not in a particular point in space, but rather throughout space at the same time. These two assumptions make it possible to calculate the history of the cosmos after a certain epoch called Planck time. Scientists have yet to determine what prevailed before Planck time. Now, that last sentence is important for Christians. <laughs> Scientists have yet to determine what prevailed before Planck time. We have a theory, right? First of all, the Big Bang wasn't very big, says Michio Kaku. Second of all, there was no bang. Third, the Big Bang theory doesn't yet tell you what banged, when it banged, how it banged. It just said that it banged a long time ago. So the Big Bang theory, in some sense, is a total misnomer. Michio Kaku, one of the main theorists of string theory, another way to try to apprehend the existence of the universe as we see it, right? So, believe it or not, every major cosmologist, even in the atheistic realm, does not hold to the Big Bang. If you go to college and you go into graduate school and things like that, as I did, one of the first things they're going to tell you is about the Big Bang and how it all works, because they know exactly how it all works, right? Yes. Then you spend a few years studying it, and they start to admit, we don't really know how it works. Not only that, but your best professors are going to come to you and say, we don't even really know if it happened. Now, there's an orthodoxy in science that's every bit as disturbing as some of the extreme orthodoxy within religious circles, right? People will fight or die for their scientific theory. In some ways, that's kind of like the Big Bang, but now more and more very prominent scientists within cosmological circles are arguing against the Big Bang. Now, the Big Bang is basically saying that if you measure things back far enough through scientific methods, mathematics, and instrumentation, you get to the place where the universe actually had a, big, a beginning. Now, we all know the kind of fanciful interpretations because they've been popularized, but they even say things like the entire universe was in a in the size of an infinitesimally small, what do they call it? Singularity. So the whole universe was like on the head of a pin. And then it exploded. And now there's all this stuff spilling out of it. Uh, did that really happen? I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you would measure that kind of thing, right? But the idea that the universe had a beginning and that all of the things we see here did not used to be here, that's relatively common. But more and more people, like uh, you might know of the uh, cosmologist Sean Carroll from Caltech University. He's famous for debating famous Christians like William Lane Craig and others. But he's one of the ones that's arguing now from a deeply educated scientific viewpoint that there was no Big Bang at all and the universe is just eternal. So that's something that has to be contended with. No beginning of the universe, no need for a creator or a Big Banger in the first place, right? Here's what Sean Carroll says in his uh, lecture, what we don't know about the beginning of the universe. My assigned topic was what we don't know about the beginning of the universe, and I focused on the question of whether there could have been space-time even before the Big Bang. Short answer, sure there could have been, but we don't actually know. So what I did to fill my time was two things. First, I talked about the different ways the universe could have existed before the Big Bang, classifying models into four possibilities. And these four possibilities will resonate with you as at least somewhat familiar. Number one, a bouncing universe. In other words, why is there a universe? Because it just keeps bouncing. 
It comes and it goes, and hopefully we don't have to live exactly this life again and again, but maybe we do. Cyclical, a series of bounces and crunches that just go on forever. Hibernating, a universe that sits quietly for a long time and then for some reason it bangs. Or reproducing, which is his theory. Universes just come out, they go forward and backward in time, and they produce baby universes as offspring that then populate the multiverse. As much as we might laugh, this is taught in universities all over the world, as at least science fact, but never as science fiction, right? And then you come and you ask the, the important question of what evidence do you have for this, and you'll probably hear some kind of a thing about models. Well, the model fits the data. Here's an important thing about the models that they currently have for cosmology that don't line up with the beginning of the universe. There are hundreds of models. Just about everybody, in order to be a professor somewhere that matters, has to have a model. And they all kind of fit the data, right? We would probably be very concerned to find out which one is true. Modern cosmology is not so concerned with which one is true. Even truth itself is a smoky, uh, oblong object headed through the skies at night to them, right? Whether or not it's true is kind of a Christian-y kind of question. Whether or not the model fits the mathematics is kind of all that matters. Now, the reason we're going through these things, a lot of you believe all of this. And a lot of you probably don't believe any of it. Why are we going over it? Because this is what's going on in the world. And I would be willing to bet that if you were to bring in a major professor from a major university, and by major we just mean rich, anywhere in the country, and you were to sit 50 of them in this room, and you were asked 50 of them if God had anything to do with the beginning of the universe, 49 would say no. That's just the fact, right? So this is a field, it's a narrowly cut field, it's a very difficult field, you've got to be at the top of your game in mathematics, and you've got to have a certain amount of understanding requisite to begin the game. But there is a historical drama behind all of this. Because the questions that have been asked by Christians and non-Christians for thousands of years about how do you explain how all of this got started and got here have not changed significantly in the thousands of years. It really hasn't. No matter what you do with the universe, no matter how many billions of years you pack on there, really the universe is getting younger and younger, right? For those of you that are older like me, you probably remember a much older universe when you were a kid, right? Now it's 13.4 billion years. I think it was 32 billion years when I was a kid. When my dad was a kid, I think it was like 60 billion. It's like getting younger fast. It keeps changing all the time. The sciences are not really bricks and mortar laid on a foundation. It's more like bricks scattered around a yard, right? Things are changing. Things are being reassessed. Things are being reinterpreted. Just because something's science today doesn't mean it'll be science in 20 or 30 years, right? Changing so fast. If you remember, a couple of thousand years ago, there were four basic elements. Earth, air, fire, and water, right? And all of their inter interactions could be explained by these things. Hot and cold, wet and dry. Now we've got lots of elements, right? We've got, a, how, many are, how many do we have now? 134? That's when I was a kid. But we're getting more all the time. Now we can explain the entire universe by 134 elements where it used to take only four. Have we gotten better at understanding? Or do we just have a more complicated question? 
That's what I mean by the question hasn't changed. Why is there something instead of nothing? And the more complicated question that's advancing itself today is this. Why this something instead of something else? Now, this idea of multiple universes and things like that, that is real science in the real universities. The fact that there's no evidence for it does not matter to people at all. It's real science, and so some people have said, well, if you have an infinite series of universes, then sooner or later one will look like this. So what if it's almost prohibitive to the entire adventure of the sciences to assume that one would actually be able to support human life in the way that we experience it? What if 99.999 billion of them could never have a sentient being that somehow stands up and actually observes itself as part of the universe? Doesn't matter, because when you have an infinite series of universes to work with, sooner or later, they say, one will have people like us. Is that true? Maybe a more reasonable thing would say, none of them would ever have people like us. Sooner or later, you've got to get to the place where you stand up and say, I am a part of the universe observing the universe being the universe. And this is at least weird to all of us. How many of you have seen rocks? Dirt doesn't do much, right? Then you get to trees, pretty impressive, more impressive than dirt. Then you get to dogs, and dogs are awesome, right? Then you get to people, and we actually consider and can mathematically map out the nature of the universe, and we can actually measure it, and we can see where it comes from and where it's going, and we are created things in the universe that can actually apprehend consciously as a sentient being the universe in which we exist. Now, think about the fact that out of all of the known universe, and the reason we say the known universe is when you get to the edge of the known universe... The reason we only stop calling the rest of it the universe is we don't know what's past there. There could be a lot of strange stuff out there past the edge of the known universe, right? So we talk about the universe as if we know what it is, and we know its shape, and we know where it's at, and we know what it's doing. But that's just as far as we can see. How many of you think to yourself, I can't see past that fence out there. There must be nothing out there. We don't know what's out there. The things that we don't know about the, ma- about the subject matter that we're talking about right now vastly outnumber the things that we know. We as human beings, it's pretty easy for us to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, right? And think that we know and understand things that we haven't even contemplated yet. So in this historical drama, we're going to go backward to get forward. Of course, Plato and Aristotle both talked about the thing that there has to be some kind of a beginning Sufficient to explain the things that exist. Now, this gets into the issue of that an explanation has to be either necessary or contingent, but also it has to be sufficient. If there were no life in the universe and there were only mud balls in motion, which is what most people kind of think it is, they're just accidental collocations of atoms in the void, right? And some of them look like the Earth and they just spin around. And every once in a while you have people on them. Some of the people are green and have antennas. I don't know. You don't know. Where's the evidence? But sooner or later, you get to the place where you have to deal with the fact that something like you exists in the world and that you are going to interpret everything that you see in the world through the kind of a thing that you are. So that's where we're going with this argument. We get to Aquinas, and he was the first one to really lay it out. 
Of course, Aquinas is the second most influential Christian after the writing of the Bible, after Augustine himself. There tends to be a general disfavor for Aquinas because he's the most important doctor in the Roman Catholic Church, but at the same time, as far as an influence on Christianity, second only to Augustine. When you do look at Augustine, he also has cosmological argumentation. His is a lot closer to the kinds of things that Protestants are comfortable with, one of which is Augustine has an easy time saying, we all know the existence of God, and we know that God caused the universe, so now let's write some arguments for it. We're a little more comfortable with that, right? So, in writing about this from the Summa, from the very beginning of the Summa, Aquinas picks up the issue of the causation of God in regard to the world, and he says in Article 3, the question is whether God exists. He has two objections to that, and he says, on the contrary, I answer that the existence of God can be proven in five ways. For time, of course, we're not going to go over all five ways, and we're not going to go over all of all three ways that we're going to read, but we're going to read enough to get the idea, the flow and the diction. Okay, the first more manifest way is the argument from motion. It is certain and evident to our senses that the world, in the world, some things are in motion. Now, whatever is in motion is put into motion by another. For nothing can be in motion except that which is in potentiality to that towards with which it is in motion, whereas the thing moves inasmuch as it is in act. For motion is nothing else but the reduction of something from potentiality to actuality. But nothing can be reduced from potentiality to actuality except by something in a state of actuality. Thus, that which is actually hot, as fire, makes wood, which is potentially hot, to be actually hot, and thereby moves and changes it. Now, it is not possible that the same thing should be at once in actuality and potentiality in the same respect, but only in different respects. For what is actually hot cannot simultaneously be potentially hot, but it is simultaneously potentially cold. It is therefore possible, in the same respect, and in the same way, a thing should be both mover and moved, that it should move itself. Therefore, whatever is in motion must be put into motion by another. Now, I know he's using the old-timey 1200s language and actuality and potentiality, and that's a little funny to our ears. But how many things do you think that if nothing else acts on them and they were alone in the universe, they would move themselves? So you see, the idea is not exactly a barren landscape. A little farther along, we get guys like Leibniz and Newton, and Newton writes these laws of motion, like that an object at rest will continue to be at rest unless it's acted upon by an outside force, not completely alien to this idea that he's talking about. Then he has this idea that an object in motion will continue in motion without moving in any other direction unless something outside, an outside force, acts upon it. Like a pool ball will continue forever unless another pool ball hits it. And something in motion will not stop unless it's acted upon by an outside force that causes it to stop. Then he gets to the laws of entropy and says that entropy within a given system will tend to degrade through time, always. It never increases in intelligence, heat, or energy. It only decreases. These ideas that were fundamental to our contemporary physics, to the Newtonian program that became modern science, are all rooted in these arguments by Aquinas that are rooted in arguments by Aristotle. His second argument, the second 
is from the nature of efficient causes, what we call causations. Emotion and causation are very important here. In the world of sense, we find that there is an order of efficient causes. There is no case, neither is it indeed possible, in which a thing is found to be the efficient cause of itself. For so it would be prior to itself, which is impossible. Now, in efficient causes, it is not possible to go on to infinity, because in all efficient causes following in order, the first cause is the cause of the intermediate cause, and the intermediate cause, the cause of the ultimate cause, whether the intermediate cause be several or only one. Now, to take away the cause is to take away the effect. Therefore, if there be no first cause among the efficient causes, there will be no ultimate nor intermediate cause. But if in efficient causes there's possible to go on to infinity, there will be no first efficient cause, neither will there be an ultimate effect, nor any intermediate efficient causes, all of which is plainly false. Therefore, it is of necessity to admit that the first cause to which everyone else gives the name of God is God. I know the language is dense, but they didn't have cable. They kind of had to have some fun, right? People would study this for years. If in, in relation to causes, how many of the causes that you see on a daily basis come back to a point and you say, ah, nothing caused that? How many of those can you say? You get up in the morning, you get your coffee, nothing caused that coffee, it just appeared there on your counter. It's amazing. It's like a Starbucks from heaven. You get in your car, where'd the car come from? Nothing caused that car. Go to work behind your computer that nothing caused and everything's just happening that's not the way we think because that's not the way the world seems how many things in this room that you can look around and see how many of them do you think probably had some kind of cause and didn't just pop into existence to the shock of everyone around now if you go back and you talk about everything in the universe having a cause what he's saying here is the idea or the assertion of an infinite series of causes, of proximate causes, of little causes caused by other things that are just little causes, is incoherent in and of itself. An infinite series of things caused by other things, none of them having the property of causation in themselves without having to be caused, is just rationally incoherent. You're violating the laws of logic. You're not being a reasonable person. Eventually, you have to get back to something that you say has the power of causation in and of itself, but it's not caused by anything outside itself. And we've had this nifty little name that we've used for a long time for that, right? God. Now, that gets into being that we'll get into right after this next one, because we're going to talk about the third way, too. Here's the thing. If I don't read you guys the historical stuff, theologically minded and are real studiers, all of you should have read him by now. There's certain guys you can't miss. Four of them are Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, and Calvin. If you haven't read them, they must be read. Otherwise, you'll just always be listening to some goofball telling you what they said. The third way is taken from possibility and necessity and runs thus. We find in nature things that are possible to be and not to be. Since they are found to be generated and to corrupt, and consequently, they are possible to be and not to be. But it's impossible for these to always exist, and that which is possible not to be at some time is not. Therefore, if everything is possible not to be, then at one time there could have been nothing in existence. Now, if this were true, in other words, if there was nothing in existence, even now there would be nothing in existence, because that which does not exist only begins to exist by something already existing. 
Therefore, if at one time nothing was in existence, it would have been impossible for anything to have begun to exist. And thus, even now, nothing would be in existence, which is absurd. Therefore, not all beings are merely possible. There must be something, the existence of which is necessary. Now again, look around the room. Which of you is a necessarily existent being? And which of you began at some point in the past? Gene, I see you calculating there, but even you had a beginning. Everything seems to have had a beginning. And yet, if everything is begun by something else, we must inevitably get to something that has the property of existence in and of himself to be able to cause things outside themselves. Now, here's the thing with this, especially in a Reformed ethos and thinking about theology clearly as revelational. The fact that we already know that God created the universe does a lot of the heavy lifting, doesn't it? So if you already know that God created the universe, is it wrong to say that God created the universe? No. You know, there's a reason that some of the big thinkers, like guys like Calvin and Luther, who knew that God created the universe and were deeply vested in the word of God, the word of God, the word of God, still used and respected this kind of argumentation. Because sometimes, in the same phrase that Francis Schaeffer famously used, they thought that sometimes there needed to be some pre-evangelism and some taking out of the mental trash and garbage that was between the person and the gospel. In other words, these are conversations you sometimes have to have with people that brings them to a place of right thinking so that they can rise to a place of right apprehension. Does the Holy Spirit actually use that kind of thing to draw a person closer to God? Well, history and the great theologians and even scripture kind of says they do. It would, you would have a hard time thinking that that's not what the Apostle Paul was doing on the, uh, on the Areopagus when he was dealing with the pagan philosophers. And he starts to quote pagan, heathen, theological sources so that he can talk to them about the God that really exists. I don't think he was saying that like Hephaestus was God and stuff like that, Right. Every once in a while, you got to get some things done. Okay, so in as far as recent developments, I have an old friend named William Lane Craig. Uh, some of you have probably heard of him if you study these kind of things. He's considered probably the world's foremost scholar, living scholar, on cosmological argumentation. And he uses a version, an ancient version that was originally from Aristotle but was brought in through uh, the Muslim scholars like Avicenna and Averroes, and he uses their argument for the existence of God. Now, immediately, that will be disturbing to us because is he arguing for their God or is he arguing for our God? Well, in his thought, he's arguing for God in general. Uh, I don't have a God in general, <laughs> but you have to understand the argument because this is what's going on out there, right? He's argued with some of the best atheistic thinkers in the world, and they want to argue with him mainly because they want to beat him up. But they don't always win. In other words, he's thought through this pretty carefully, and he brings these arguments down to a basic few punctuated hot points that make his point. The most prominent form of the argument, as defended by William Lane Craig, states that the Cosm Kalam cosmological argument is in the following brief syllogism. What begins to exist has a cause. Everybody agree with that? The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. See how simple it is? One of the things that people love in the sciences and in the philosophical community is when an argument is small enough that it's hard to get at it. 
right? Given the conclusion, Craig appends the further premise, and the conclusion is based upon the conceptual analysis of the properties of the cause. The universe has a cause. The universe has a cause, then an uncaused personal creator of the universe exists, without whom the universe would have no beginning and no cause. Therefore, an uncaused personal creator of the universe exists, who causes the universe, who is beginningless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and infinitely powerful. See how he starts with one set of arguments, then he moves on to the next set of arguments? These are kind of the God of the Bible, right? The basic idea of proving the existence of something like a God tends to be what he's going for. He and I have had conversations about that. I'm uncomfortable with it. He thinks it's great. So we just move on from there. Uh, then he says this, transcending the entire universe, there exists a cause which brought the universe into being ex nihilo. That means from nothing. Our whole universe was caused to exist by something beyond it and greater than it. For it is no secret that one of the most important conceptions of what theists mean by God is the creator of heaven and earth. Now, to go into some of the recent historical developments, we kind of have to talk about some of the other guys that disagree with the cosmological argument. You know, if you guys know me well enough, you know there's this one sense in which I get really excited about stuff. There's this other sense, and I don't really care if you believe me. <laughs> what I mean by that is whether or not you buy the cosmological argument or not has nothing to do with our relationship. I'm not vested in it. What you think about Christ and him crucified, that matters to me a lot. This is an interesting thing to dive into, right? But there are notable scholars that did not agree that the cosmological argument was a valid or useful application of Christian theology, right? You know, because it happened out here, some of you might have been at this debate, but there was a famous debate between R.C. Sproul and Greg Bonson. And a lot of it came down to the fact that R.C. Sproul had a classical conception of apologetics, in other words, cosmological argumentation was probably primary and that being able to show from outside the Bible that the God that we talk about exists is a primary tool to evangelization and bringing people to God. Greg Bonson had a different set of arguments and they had a great debate that if you ever get a chance to listen to it online would be very edifying for you. But here's what it basically came down to. They argued through the basic principles and eventually it got to the place where somebody had to give. And Sproul asked Bonson, aren't you really talking about the cosmological argument or maybe a version of the ontological argument? And then Greg Bonson, one of the most notable purveyors of presuppositional apologetics and also the transcendental argument says this, in my apologetics classes, I have what's called a reconstruction of the ontological argument along presuppositional lines. The difficulty is most of the, in most of this is developed by John Frame and myself, and you don't find it in Van Til's literature anywhere. In a sense, you can call it a reconstruction of the ontological argument, but you could see it in another sense. It is a reconstruction of the cosmological argument. Now, this is something, you know, I've had a chance to talk to some of the most notable living uh, people that that work in this field, including John Frame and such. But most people, I would say nine out of 10 people that follow this specific trajectory fail to understand that what Bonson himself was trying to do was a reconstruction of the cosmological argument. Now, what do we mean by a reconstruction? Well, that's a complicated bag of tricks that involves listening to his lectures and things like that. But 
by his own mouth, he was not trying to throw out cosmological argumentation. He just found that the classical form and the verbiage of it, he didn't feel like it was accurate or necessarily valid. That's something that we have to know, right? He goes on to say this. And ultimately, I think some interpreters of Van Til are right when they say it is really a reconstruction of the teleological argument. What it's basically saying in Van Til's little pamphlet, Why Do I Believe in God?, it shows the character of a man, a precious Christian gentleman that is, and secondly, it shows the nature of his reason for the impossibility of the contrary. Van Til says, you know, on your presuppositions, you can't account for either order or disorder. That's unity or disunity in the world. You cannot, you can't uh, show me why there is unity or disharmony in anything. Why everything is not the same. Why everything is not ultimately diverse. He says, on the other hand, on my system of thought, I give you the basis for unity and diversity and one and the many. And therefore, that's a transcendental argument. But you see, in a subtle sense, that sounds like the teleological argument. And I would say not in a subtle sense. It's just using different verbiage to get to the same place. You're still talking about how you actually explain the world. And maybe you do go by a diagram of looking at all of the different attempts to understand the world. You look at Buddhism. You look at Hinduism. You look at modern scientism. You look at these things and you say, tell me what the world is to you. And how do you justify your use of the laws of logic in time and space? And they tell you, and it all falls apart. Contradiction in Christian theology, just as much as in philosophy, is a sign of falsehood, right? So even at this time, you would probably find many people that are in this specific apologetic camp that would immediately rise up and say cosmological argumentation is ungodly and it's false and you should never use it and all this. When, frankly, Bonson didn't have a problem with it and his interpretation of Van Til was he didn't have a problem with it either. They were just careful. They were just careful. Now another famous person in this is Gordon H. Clark. Now Gordon Clark was notably the lifetime enemy of Cornelius Van Til. They're probably still at, their th- at each other's throats in heaven right now. And Peter's telling them, you two, knock it off. But Clark's problem with the cosmological argument, he rejected it because of logical validity, not because it required some kind of a posit of a God that was not necessarily the Christian God. The fourth objection is more complicated because Aquinas holds that God's existence is identical with his essence, which is not true of any other object of knowledge. He must assert that no predicate can be attributed to God in the same sense in which it is said of created beings. So when Aquinas says being, essay, and he's saying it about God, it means something different than when he says it about man or the universe. And you might think to yourself, that makes sense to me, right? Being is kind of a general term. There's lots of things that have being. At the same time, if you're doing a logical framework and you're talking about the being of God and the being of the universe, being has to have an identical meaning in order for the logic to cohere. If it has a different meaning, what if you were using terms and you were making a logical argument and you had your premises and you had your consequence, right? But all the terms had different meanings every time you use them. What if they have a little bit of a different meaning? Still an invalid argument, right? 
So one of Clark's things is, in the formulation that happened all the way back with Aquinas, when he talks about being, and the being of God, and the being of the universe, he means something different. That makes the whole thing invalid. Think about that. If God is a mover, and man is a mover, the word mover does not mean the same thing either. Interesting. Not only so, but since God's existence and essence are identical, the verb to be does not have the same meaning in the two cases. If we say that God is good, neither good nor is means the same thing when we talk about God and people. Hence, when we say that God exists, the existence of God does not mean existence in the same way that we use it for pebbles or marbles. Now, in a valid argument, the terms that can occur in the conclusion must be the same terms that are presented in the premises. If some additional element is added to the conclusion, the syllogism is a fallacy. Then later he says, this assertion that the cosmological argument is valid, absolute, sound, and a formal demonstration, and not merely a probability argument does not hold true of any cosmological argument published in any book. That's pretty powerful. He also says here, Van Til pays no attention to these fallacies embedded in Thomas Aquinas' argument. The argument that he defends, as far as he knows, no one has ever written. But how does he know that it's possible to formulate an ideal argument that's actually formal if he has never actually written it? That's interesting too, right? Now I know that for a lot of you, we're going into subject matter here. They're like, where is this going? But to a lot of you, you're looking at me like, oh yeah, I remember that dude. Okay, so this is still important stuff. And it brings us to the contemporary challenge to epistemology. We come from a time when there was Augustine. And for 800 years in Christian theology, Augustine reigns. And all of the theology was basically Augustinian, which some people would say is Platonic, but it's not really Platonic at all. It's scriptural. And what they think is knowledge comes from God, and the interpretation of external reality has to do with understanding it within the context of God's revelation of himself, both in nature and in scripture, right? Then we come to Anselm, interestingly, and Anselm says, God is that which no greater can be conceived, the ontological argument. And as a reaction to the ontological argument, we get Aquinas, who through the rediscovery of Aristotle brings empiricism into the church. Now, we're going somewhere with this. In the 1700s, this became a huge fistfight that became the formation of Western, Western civilization. What I mean by Western, Western civilization is civilization for the last 300 years. So we get to the place where empiricism and rationalism are at war with one another. One of the things about Aquinas' interpretation of cosmology is that it's all rooted in the person's ability to apprehend the external world and then to argue their way back to a God that they infer exists from the things that they see and experience. Augustine's arguments were a little more like this. You have no idea what you're experiencing until the light of God shines upon you, and then you understand the world. Now, those are both epistemological versions of the cosmological argument. But one starts with me, and one starts with God. Isn't that interesting? In empiricism, especially in the work of Aquinas, that became the most influential text for hundreds of years, he believed that the person came into the world a tabula rasa. Does anybody remember that phrase from school? A blank slate knowing nothing, no impressions, no knowledge, no nothing. And then sensations came into the soul through the, through the senses, 
and populated the soul until we came to a place of knowledge and understanding. But you were an empty well that was filled through sensation. Now, in that Augustinian understanding that was really tended to be favored by the rationalists, and we'll go over their names in a minute, they tended to think you came into the world full of knowledge. And with the knowledge that you came into the world with, you were already well-suited to begin interpreting your experiences. Those two things are very different. So there were the three great rationalists, Spinoza, Leibniz, and Descartes, and the three great empiricists, Locke, Berkeley, and Hume. Spinoza is interesting, but we don't have the time. Okay, so Leibniz. Leibniz was interesting because he was reformed in his understanding. He invented calculus. Now, a lot of people say that Newton did, but one of the two of them did, but one of them was faster, and it tends to be Leibniz, right? Guys that invent stuff like calculus are really smart, right? And one of the things that he said is it's impossible that a man come into the world a blank slate. A man comes into the world with innate knowledge because he's created in the image and likeness of God. And so certain things like the existence of God, he knows immediately. And from that, that's the beginning of knowledge through which he interprets the entire world around him. In other words, if you don't know God, you can't know anything else. And so God is the beginning of knowledge and the condition of any other knowledge that you will ever have. If you do not admit and respect the existence of God, let me tell you what you will know. Nada. You will never interpret your experience and know what you are. You will never interpret the world. No matter how big an eyeball you build to the stars, you will never be able to figure out what's going on out there. Let me tell you something else that they start to teach you in graduate school. We don't know what atoms are. We don't know what electrons are. We don't know what protons I know all this. Well, everything's made of those, right? They make perfect sense. We don't know. The reason that we have these little pictures of little balls going around each other is that's what the planets look like. Then we get down there and we find maybe it's a field. We don't really know. And we get down below the level of the electrons, the neutrons, and the protons, and we know even less. We always think we're going to get down to this final particle, and there's going to be a sign on it and says, this is the last particle. There is no such thing. Our knowledge is based on interpretation at this level of reality that God has made us to. And he has not given us the ability or the insight to be able to figure out what matter is, or space, or time. We're in the middle of all of it. We don't know what it is. Nobody knows, so you can feel in good company. What we know is good from evil. What we know is God and man. What we know is labor and happiness and sadness and sometimes death. We know and understand all the human things that come to be with being an expression of the image and likeness of God. Understanding the multiverse, nobody's ever going to understand that. It's too big, we're too small, and we only live this long. That does not mean that scientific investigation is futile, but scientific investigation is for the purpose of the increase in the well-being and the care of mankind. Now that changes the entire strategy, doesn't it? The common narrative is, once you look out far enough at the universe and understand that the entire universe just came into existence at some time for no reason, it was basically an accident, and then people come spitting out of it, then you understand life doesn't matter. We don't matter. Life is an accident. It's a rare accident, but it doesn't matter. Or 
Life is really what matters. And it doesn't matter if the universe was 10 billion times, 10 billion times larger than it is with even more galaxies and even more stars. At the end of the day, they're just hot balls of gas. So it's easy for us to lose perspective and start to think that the important things are out there and we are so small. That we're so small is true. That we are unimportant is false. And so when Leibniz comes into this, he comes in talking about the innate knowledge that man has and it brings a different schematic. When Locke, we all remember Locke because he was actually formative in the coming of the United States of America. John Locke was a famous guy even before the American Revolution. He had a very common sense approach to knowledge and even came up with different theories of contract and theories of property. He was a brilliant guy, but he held to Aquinas' view that all knowledge were a blank slate and it just has to come in through sensation. So obviously, if you know there's a God, it's going to be a deduction from your experiences. Then we have Descartes. We'll all remember Descartes because he said, I think, therefore I am, which we always think to ourselves, well, that was easy. I could have done that. At the same time, he was the first one, which makes it kind of hard. And the reason that he said it is because the question that was going on, now this sounds crazy, was do we exist? It's still a real question. If you want to know what's going on at the universities right now and why there's such chaos, most people have been convinced at a very young age, that they do not exist. <laughs> As I said, it sounds a little crazy. But they've been convinced that everything they are and everything they feel and all of their relationships, their relationships with people, their relationships to the past, their relationship to the future is all just some kind of a game. It's all just some kind of an illusion that we've created through a social compact or relationships between people. But none of their lives are real and so their importance is not real. Their value as a human being is not real. And Descartes, he was a Christian. And he decided if there's one thing that is useful to do, he's going to figure out what's really true. What he can absolutely know is true. And he even talked about religion. And he said, lots of people have lots of opinions about religion, and I don't know which one to go with. So he argued there's one thing that must absolutely be true, that maybe could be used as the foundation for understanding that other things are true. He said, I can doubt the world because perhaps I'm a brain in a vat. And I can doubt the existence of other persons because I can't see their thoughts and their conscious apprehension of reality. Maybe they're just all robots. And I can even doubt my own perceptions of the world. But one thing I can't doubt is my own existence because if I doubt my own existence, I must exist in order to doubt it. So if I think or if I doubt, I must exist. Now I know that I exist, and how can I understand my existence? And he came very quickly to the determination that without God or something so much like God that to not call it God was kind of just playing a game with words, knowledge of the self and knowledge of the world was impossible. He even said, there's a guarantee that my knowledge of the external world has some level of reality in it simply by the fact that God would not allow me to be universally deceived because God is not a liar. Now you notice, that's not empiricism. He's just trying to find a way to justify the existence of the external world outside himself without becoming an empiricist. As we go on, there was eventually Hume. Now Hume was a good Presbyterian boy, raised in a Reformed home. I think maybe his grandfather was a Presbyterian pastor in Scotland. 
And Hume was an atheist. He was raised on the confessions and the catechism. He knew all our stuff. All of us should remember that. He became the most devastating atheist of his age, and most of his arguments are still the most devastating arguments of this age. One of the things he said is a lot of cosmological argument and teleological argument are rooted in the universe acting somewhat like a machine, and even people act like them so that they exhibit design and order. And he said, you know what? I think the universe is a little more like a cabbage, which might sound strange, really, to me. Even if it's a cabbage, God had to create the cabbage, right? It doesn't get him off of anything. But what he said is even causation itself and the fact that everything needs a cause is not something you could ever prove or know. It's just a habit. Everything we ever see has a cause, and everything we ever see is an effect, but that doesn't mean everything has a cause and an effect. And in the contemporary cosmological argumentation, you will find a steady stream of very intellectual persons that are willing to claim universes just pop out of nothing sometime for no reason. It just happens. At the same time, Hume would never allow someone to drop a brick over his head hoping that it would not fall and strike him. Because it happened in the past, just doesn't mean it's going to happen in the future, right? We can't assume causation within the universe, and yet no one can live consistently with his interpretation of the universe because it's a strange kind of madness. Now we start to get into the ideas that the Apostle Paul talks about where some people's enormous resistance to the existence of God is actually a resistance to something they know that's so resoundingly powerful within their own heart and mind that they are willing to create any kind of a construct, even that universes just create themselves from time to time for no reason, simply to avoid the existence of the God that they already know. It's one of the reasons I don't have any problem with somebody saying, uh, it's true that the universe exists because God created it. Why would a Christian have a problem with that? We already think that, right? So to have vehement denials of cosmological argumentation just doesn't seem like the reasonable response of the Christian that already knows that the argument is true. Not that it is independent of God, but that it can be understood within the context of God and how he's revealed himself to be. Now then we get to the biggest dog of all, which is Immanuel Kant. How many of you have had a chance to study Immanuel Kant? Still today, probably the most influential of all of the modern philosophers, and he affected everyone that came after him. Basically what he did, which is entirely inaccurate, but you've got to get a sense of it anyway, is he took all of the empiricists like Hume and all of the rationalists like Descartes, and he put them together and made a new philosophy. He said, yes, knowledge is not in the soul until it comes through the senses. But really, we have these psychological lenses through which we interpret all things. We have at least 12 categories like unity, plurality, totality, quantity, negation and affirmation, limitation, inherent subsistence, cause and effect, time and space, modality. These things are part of the mind. We impose them on the world. Maybe they're not out here at all. If all of those things are imposed by the mind, but not out here in the world, we have no choice but to see them in the world, whether they exist or not. And so it's with Kant that one of his major students, Marx, came forth and gave an entire reinterpretation of reality that we're struggling with to this very day. That history has no meaning, 
and truth is only power, and blood is knowledge. Force is the only law, right? But we get back to Kant, and we get to this place where he says, the reason we think these things are out here is because they're just preconditions in the human mind. They're lenses through which the mind brings all of its knowledge in. We can't help but see them the way they are. And so he had this idea called the dingensick, the thing in itself. Have you guys ever heard that? The dingensick, the thing in itself. He said, can we ever know the thing in itself? He says, no. We can never know the world. We can never know ourselves. We can never know God as he is in himself. Because our lenses, the psychology of the mind, because this is a psychologization of knowledge, precludes us ever knowing God as he actually is. We can only know him through the lenses of him being a cause or him being powerful or him being good. What's he really like? No one can ever know. If you think about it, the entirety of liberal theology for the last couple of hundred years, Kant is the Messiah of liberal theology. We keep our religion. We keep our churches. We keep our songs. We keep our hymnal. We keep our sacraments. But God is so wholly other that he cannot be known in any way as he really is. And so then we start to think Hinduism might be just as valid an interpretation of theology as Christianity. God can't be known. The universe can't be known. We are skeptics about everything. We believe in nothing. Isn't that what we're struggling with today? When you go outside the church doors and you go away from the preaching of the word, isn't what the world is struggling with all around us is the vacuousness of human understanding, believing nothing, trusting nothing, denying everything. The reason this stuff has legs is because it has an effect on our immediate present and future. says, thus against the empiricists can't argue the humans came into the world already knowing about space and time along with the 12 categories. They did not have to learn them through experience. Okay, as we go on. The big question, can we actually apprehend the true and final status of the universe and our own existence? Generally, when you ask a Christian this question, they say, of course. And that's because they already know the answer to the question. It's kind of cheating. But... That is the question that's floating in today's contemporary cosmogony. Can this even be known? Now you think to yourself, these people have jobs. They study this stuff all day. They come up with equations. Maybe we can know equations. Maybe we can't know the universe in and of itself. The general answer is probably not, and it seems facially unlikely. Modern cosmology is somewhat like a religion but not like a Christian religion, which is rooted in history and knowledge, but more of one of those fideistic religions where they just believe in something without any evidence or any reason whatsoever. They just believe it's probably true, and that's why there are all the models, and that's why there's the dense fascination with equations and mathematics, even though they don't necessarily answer anything about the world that indeed does exist. We can apply this same kind of argument even to the mathematics itself. Here's how we do this. One plus one equals what? You all good at math. When did that start to be true? If we buy the Big Bang Theory and we buy 
that 13.8 or 0.4 billion years ago, there was a beginning to the universe from an infinitesimally small uh, singularity that became the entire universe. Before that happened, was one plus one equal to two? It only exists within minds. Mathematics is not actually on paper. Just like, you know, this is just black lines on white paper, right? Mathematics is not something that happens out here, and mathematics does not happen out here. Mathematics is something that happens here and here. These eternal, unchanging truths that really define the nature of this physical reality, you know, everything that we experience in this physical universe, it acts according to preordained laws, even the laws of gravity, that all two particles of matter attract each other equal to the mass times the distance and inversely proportional to the square root of the same. Why is it so even? Why is it so perfect? Why is it so bizarrely mathematical? Everything that we see in the universe seems to act according to laws they control everything that happens. Nothing is really chaotic. Nothing is really out of its place. I don't know why everything is in the place that it is, but whatever it is, it's acting according to these laws that existed before the universe. We apply them to the universe and we interpret the universe through them, but they are not part of the universe. They kind of are and are not. And so where were the mathematics before the universe? Now, not many people are going to argue, it's pretty hard to argue, that mathematics itself is not an aspect of mind, not of matter. You can't get it from the matter. Really, even your brain is a large sack of meat. It's a meatball on steroids, right? It's not a thinking machine. We always pretend that our brains think. Really, our brains don't think. They have some kind of a moderating influence between information and the external world. God made us that way. But there's just neurons, and neurons have a little salt ionic pump in them. And they have all or none firing. And one neuron is not a thought, right? It fires. Was that a thought? No. What if you include a couple more? How many before it's a thought? 12? What about 12 billion? It does not matter how many neurons fire. It is not a thought. They never become, I love my mother. They never become, I'd like a sausage for lunch. Thought is something that happens in the soul. It does not actually happen in the meat sack, right? We work in the physical world, but our thoughts are non-physical and eternal. Think of the laws of logic. A is A. It's pretty simple, right? Marty is Marty. Marty cannot be both Marty and not Marty at the same time and in the same relationship. Marty is always either Marty or not Marty. These are the universal laws of logic. You can't do anything in the sciences without them. You can't do cosmology without them. And at the same time, they are not a product of the Big Bang. Who is going to say logic happened after the Big Bang? Well, how many, how many years? 500 million? And then the laws of logic became valid? And so, because logic itself and the laws of mathematics are an attribute of minds or souls and not a physical characteristic of the universe... There must be a mind or soul that pre-existed the universe that brought the universe into being within the coherent structures of logic and mathematics. Is it Aquinas's cosmological argument? Well, no. It's more Augustine by way of Clark and some other thinkers talking about the universality of logic, the undeniability of logic, and the eternality of logic. The physical universe it can't be eternal because everything we see in it is caused 
and contingent. None of it has to exist, and there was a time when it didn't exist. At the same time, logic, reason, I'll go even farther and say personality is eternal. Because of the things that we talked about and the different issues of epistemology, which we could go weeks just on epistemology and how a person knows what they know, because usually a person does not know things the way they think they know things. They know them from some other way. And this battle that happened in modern philosophy between the empiricist and the rationalist, which kind of came together in Kant, still we don't really know exactly how we know what we know. There was a famous philosopher that says, God just makes everything appear in your mind and that's how you know it. At the same time, I don't believe it. I don't have any way to refute it. But you are a knowing, thinking, rational, logical, sentient, self-aware being in the world. For you to be told, you need to shuck all that at the door and start to think about the importance of the universe billions of miles away without interpreting things in relation to a personal being with logic and reason and self-awareness, is a trick. It's a cheat. They're trying to take all of the most basic tools that you came into the world with that make you who and what you are and saying, now interpret everything as if you were not a person and didn't have reason and didn't have logic. Because one of the most important things about a cosmological kind of an argument, however you get there, is that personality pre-existed the universe. Now that's not something we hear a lot. Not that personality is the universe. That's pantheism. Not that personality came into being with the universe. That's kind of deism. But that personality planned and organized and designed the universe, which is why out of all the things in the universe, think about all of them. Even the stars outnumber us billions to one. Every man, woman, and child on the earth do not add up to this much of the known universe. And yet we are really the only interesting thing in the universe. Have you ever noticed that? When I was a kid, I had a telescope. I was Cassiopeia. And after a while, I got over it. You know why? It was really boring. When I started to get together with God, then it got interesting again, Right? It doesn't matter how many balls of gas you have out there in the universe. If it doesn't have any meaning, if it doesn't have any purpose, if it doesn't have any relevance to the life of a human being that's an actual sentient observer, it really doesn't matter, right? All the action in the universe is kind of happening right here. Why do we like Star Wars? Because we kind of pretend something's happening out there somewhere. But we don't know. We know that it's here. Now, when we think about an anthropocentric or an anthropological interpretation of cosmology, what we say is that what is usually said is this life as it is can't possibly matter because there's so little of it, and we're in such a useless part of the universe, as if the rest of it was of some great value, right? Whereas what we actually think is because this is the place where God did his thing and where God entered in, took on humanity and entered into covenant and fellowship with humanity, we can actually say this is the most important place in the universe. Well, how can you say that? Because there is nothing interesting going on anywhere in the universe except for here. You can't even get a decent sandwich out there. <laughs> is that cosmological argumentation? 
teleological, cosmological argumentation, design, order, the necessity of going back to the existence of God to understand anything that's going on out here. How are you going to know anything if it doesn't start from God? Now, there's an idea in transcendental argumentation, which is actually a fractured form of cosmological argumentation. Kant is the one that came up with transcendental argumentation when he was trying to get rid of God. And here's the way that he did it. We can't know anything about God, but if we don't have something like God to get as a heuristic principle for the interpretation of all of matter and life and such, we can never understand anything. So we're going to keep God because life is incoherent without him. Was he right that life is incoherent without him? I think he was. Was he wrong that you can't know anything about him? Perhaps if all we could know is what the philosophers say we can know, that he's just a big cause out there, or that he's powerful enough to start the universe, or that he's smart enough to make stuff like us, maybe even after all of that, he's still irrelevant. But if he revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and if he stepped into time and space and history, and he communicated himself to us, even as a grand condescension, so that in our childish way, we can understand the real God as he has revealed himself to be, and if he wrote a fat book full of teaching about him so that we can know not just him, we can know ourselves, then he is incredibly relevant to everything we do in this life. And this is just to say... Death is not a great escape for a little bit of fluff on the side of a planet moving around a star that's going through a galaxy, that's going through a universe that doesn't really matter. Life, our life, is as a manifestation of a thinking, personal, moral being that is the only thing in the universe created in the image and likeness of God. In other words, the things that existed before the universe was brought into existence we have some of that in us. And that's wonderful and amazing. So I know we could go on about these things forever, and I would if I thought you guys could take it. But, you know, three, four in the morning, I'll just get more coffee. You guys will all be asleep. Does anybody have any questions? Aquinas' view of this blank, this blank slate view, uh, to put it in a, in a theological perspective, what, is, what would have been his view on original sin? Aquinas believed in original sin. Of course, the primary aspect of original sin, and this is written in the Summa, but also in the teaching magisterium of the church, in the Baltimore Catechism and other works, is that the primary manifestation of original sin is the guilt of sin, which everyone has by being an offspring of Adam. But secondarily, there's an actual effect upon the morality or the will of the individual. All through the classical age, and you'll also find this in Luther and Calvin, they tend to have a little bit of a disjunct between the mind or the soulish aspect of the person and the will, sometimes called the heart. And they would say that the heart tends to be the center of the corruption of original sin. But Aquinas would tend to say that even an unfallen person can reason their way to the bare existence of God. Now, Luther, and even Calvin's correction of him is, uh, every aspect of man has been corrupted by sin. And that's why it came into our confessions and such. In other words, your mind is not clear of sin because it operates upon the, the, the rules of reason and logic, while your heart or your inclinations or your will is corrupted. Really, they're both corrupted. 
So that even if your will was free to love that which is good and love truth which it is not, even your mind would find a way to not logically follow the argumentation to the existence of God given the opportunity. There's a place where Jesus in John chapter 6 is talking to a bunch of people and they want to know why they won't come to him, which is really a strange question, right? And he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. And so yet it's true that Aquinas would often minimize the intellectual, what we call the, the, the noetic effects of sin. And he would tend to maximize the will or the corruption of the will of the individual or their love for sin. Anybody else? Um, so, because some of this is new to me, um, and um, so it's, it, it, it's, it is very interesting. But the, the uh, I, I guess in, in our day, with there being so many different thought processes, philosophical arguments, uh, you know, whatever it may be, a cosmological argument or whatever. I mean, what do some of the modern um, philosophers say with, you know, this expanse that's been going on for, in, in knowledge? You see what I'm saying? The yeah. accumulated knowledge that has happened over the past, you know, since Aristotle. Since sure. He's, he's the big thing, you know, uh, since Aristotle. So, you know, Aristotle and then, then Thomas Aquinas. So, so, so how do they wrap their mind around all these different thoughts? Mm -hmm. And do you get what I'm trying to say? Because it's just so vast. Sure. Are you talking about right now? And are yeah, you talking about Christians or non-Christians? Um, for non-Christians. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to be very futile to say, I'm going to believe this. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a thousand different other beliefs that you can believe. We are going through a time of the fusion of philosophy and the sciences. We're going through a time when philosophical argumentation can be taken as science and scientific argument can be taken as philosophy. At the same time, we do kind of lose philosophy through that. When you take philosophy classes in college, you're basically learning logic and the history of philosophy. And one of the first things you learn in the history of philosophy is that no two philosophers agreed with each other about anything. Exactly. And you get to the point where you think to yourself, well, why should any of the two agree today? Why should I really buy into any of this? But contemporary philosophy is mainly a philosophy of skepticism. You can't really believe anything that's going on, and that would be from Wittgenstein all the way down to Rorty, all the way down to the contemporary writers. Uh, I tend to be a skeptic in regard to everything. People are often surprised I'm a Christian because I don't believe too much. Uh, at the same time, I'm also a skeptic in regard to the sciences because they so often prove things that are true that turn out to be false. Or the reinterpretation of the theory once it's found to be false uses all the same names and all the same words but means a different thing. Science tends to be a bit of a spiral of learning and really what I take as being valuable from the sciences is whatever turns out to be practical and you can actually do something with. So dentistry, plumbing, and toasters are science. Speculations about the beginning of the universe, hey, could be true, could be false, I don't know. Let's give it a few thousand years and see how it pans out, right? <laughs> Almost all of the sciences are the measurement of a line or the measurement of a temperature, which is actually the measurement of a line, or the measurement of distance, which is the measurement of a line, or the measurement of motion, which is lines getting shorter and lines getting longer, right? It's really not a lot to know. It's a lot to speculate about. So when something works, 
perhaps we have reached some kind of truth, but not necessarily, right? Gravity, all of us believe in gravity. We're sane individuals living in the 21st century, right? Except for, you know, it doesn't exist, but we all believe in it because stuff falls down, right? Gravity is an equation, but it's also a description. All two particles of matter attract each other equal to the mass times the distance, right? But before, Aristotle said that things fall down because they like the earth better than the air. <laughs> and they fall down at 42 feet per second squared. So he was not wrong, even though I think he was wrong, right? We say that the earth attracts the moon. What does that mean? That it puts on a pair of heels and a nice dress and... <laughs> Whether or not we understand it or not doesn't change its rotation around the Earth at all. You know, Newton said that all two particles of matter attract each other, but Einstein said that things are rolling in the curvature of space caused by mass. It's not exactly the same answer. They both work, right? So uh, I'm neither a realist nor an anti-realist in regard to the sciences, but I am a realist when it comes to logic. Logic is real and actually exists, but it only exists as persons doesn't exist anywhere else. I think what we're going to see is we're going to continue to spiral through the sciences and find out how they do interesting things. Some of those things will save people's lives and some of those things will destroy nations and empires. Because the important thing is not whether we advance with scientific capacity, it's whether or not we have the nobility and the wisdom to use things rightly as God has created them to be. You know, who knew that someday some guy was going to be able to build a bomb the size of a suitcase that would blow up a city the size of New York. Science is incredibly dangerous because God has equipped us with incredibly facile minds that can build stuff. So we can either build good things or evil things, which to me is much more important than whether or not we can build interesting things. Anybody else? Dan? Thank <laughs> you.